Greetings, Bread of Life, on this fourth Sunday of Easter. This week's passages all relate to a theme that recurs many times throughout both the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, that of the Good Shepherd. It's a familiar and well-worn theme, and it's inspired lots of cheesy Sunday school drawings like this, or this, or this, or this. Okay, it's a little too easy to find these and moth them, so let's try and get past the fuzzy pictures of white Jesus and instead travel back to a totally different place. Iraq. That's right, Iraq. If you fly into Baghdad and you drive a mere two and a half hours to south-central Iraq, you'll find the city of Nippur. Now, I say city, but Nippur is really an archaeological site now, where scholars explore the ruins of one of the great temples of the ancient world, as well as the large city that was nearby in its shadow. And Nippur was one of the most sacred Sumerian sites, so sacred that even when it was conquered, the conquerors always seemed to be in awe of its religious grandeur. So it was actually preserved as a religious city for over 6,000 years, not just in, as a Sumerian city, but later as an Assyrian city and then a Babylonian city. Of course, the reason they kept it was fear. They were afraid because this was the temple of the Supreme Lord Enlil, the Prince of the World. Now, in Sumerian creation myths, Enlil is one of the creators of the entire cosmos. By the way, those myths happen to come from cuneiform tablets that are all discovered right here in Nippur. Now, later Assyrians and Babylonians would reverently continue to offer sacrifices to Enlil, sometimes combining his name with attributions of their own chief deities. But Enlil had such a large role in their literature of ancient Sumerian culture that we see it in this Epic of Atrahasis. Now, scholars tell us that this epic is one of the earliest pieces of written human narrative literature that we have, probably from around 1900 BC. In this epic, it tells the story of the Sumerian pantheon, and Enlil has a starring role. He is the supremely powerful and transcendent god, the king of all the other gods in the pantheon, who are so afraid of him, they are unable to even look at him. And with all that power, Lord Enlil is demanding. In the epic, he has the lower gods doing all the manual labor in the world. But they got tired of that, so they started a revolt. They complained to Enlil of all the work they had to do. So he, Enlil, has a mother goddess create some humans. Humans really are an afterthought. They're created to be slave labor for the gods. They just relieve the gods from tedious drudgery. Now, one of the common sacrifices that kings would continue to offer at this temple were prisoners of war from their conquests. You would parade them in front of Enlil to thank him for the victory he granted you. Now, Enlil wasn't just demanding. He was also capricious. His very name means Lord of Contention or Storm. He seems to get angry really easily. The Epic of Atrahasis has this version of the Great Flood story, which is much like Genesis, but unlike in Genesis, Lord Enlil doesn't bring a flood out of sorrow for humanity's evil, but because the humans are annoying him too much because they're too loud. They're so noisy during their forced labor that they prevent him from sleeping. Seriously, that's how the story goes. And by the way, there's also a Noah-like figure in this story, but Enlil gets really mad at him. He's really enraged that one pesky human actually escapes by building an ark. So in general, Lord Enlil is terrifying and cranky. Now, you might be surprised at this point to find out that Enlil is actually described in ancient Sumerian texts 
as a shepherd of his people. A shepherd. Clearly, what they mean by shepherd is a bit different than what we're used to. Enlil is a god that you want to appease with transactional sacrifices and worship. You just do that because you're afraid of him. You're, do your part as a people, and then maybe if you're lucky, he'll give you victory and prosperity. Now, just a few miles away from the splendor of the temple and the city, there was a ditch, an irrigation canal. And in that ditch, there actually were Hebrew prisoners of war deported from Israel in their forced march to Babylon who were finally settled in Nippur. And there in that ditch, of all places, one Hebrew prisoner named Hezkel, or Ezekiel, was seized by a vision of the Most High God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and the patriarchs. A vision of Yahweh himself. Now, when you read a passage like chapter 34, one of the texts for this morning, it's easier to forget that Ezekiel was speaking his prophecies within the shadow of this powerful ancient conquering culture of temple mounts in cities like uh, Nippur and Enlil. They were all around him. He would have been well aware of all the stories around Lord Enlil. He likely made the 60-mile journey to the city of Babylon at some point. And Babylon was the largest city in the entire world at this time. Every Jewish exile who ever goes there is astonished to this wonder of the ancient world with its hanging gardens and monumental temple ziggurat. But let's take a look at Ezekiel 34. Because as the Sumerians also described Enlil, Ezekiel describes the Lord God Yahweh as a shepherd. But look at how Ezekiel plays out the metaphor. The first part of the passage is a searing indictment of Israel's rulers. Those are the bad shepherds. Instead of feeding the sheep, these bad shepherds feed themselves. They feed on the sheep. And here Ezekiel is echoing Jeremiah chapter 23, who also rails against bad shepherds. Now, who are these bad shepherds? Commentators seem to divide on this question. Some of them think it's domestic. It's the elite rulers of Judea and Samaria. Those rulers before the fall of Jerusalem were notoriously corrupt. So it makes sense that the bad shepherds would be the elite rulers. But another reading is that they were actually the foreign rulers, the imperial colonizers or conquerors who oppressed the Israelites. And notice that on either reading, it's political authority which is central to Ezekiel's critique. So Ezekiel, just like Jeremiah, he's criticizing political leaders and rulers for their corruption, for oppressing and consuming those under their charge instead of caring for them. Now in Jeremiah, God talks about replacing those bad political rulers with better ones. If the problem is a failure of leadership, the solution is to get new leaders. But Ezekiel goes much further. In this dramatic turnaround, verse 11, instead of replacing one set of politicians with another, it's just God himself who steps in. God will be the shepherd, the ruler. God would himself shape an entirely new political community. And unlike other political rulers, God describes a massive reconstruction of a people, a people that had been scattered and destroyed. Now God has a systematic regathering. This divine shepherd would rescue them from the scattered places and gather them together, reunite the lost sheep into a single flock that would be fed, nurtured, and given rest. Nor is this supposed to be a one-off intervention where God regathers and leaves this flock to begin their life on their own. 
As God says, I myself will feed my flock and I myself will lead them to rest. And in a departure from the soft and cuddly feel-good Sunday school picture, Ezekiel ends his passage with judgment. God himself will be the agent of judgment. The fat and the strong sheep, God will eliminate, feeding them with judgment. So both Yahweh and Enlil are described as shepherds, transcendently powerful rulers who rule their people as a kind of political authority. But where Enlil is capricious, Yahweh is described as slow to anger. Where Enlil is demanding and terrifying, Yahweh is long-suffering. Where Enlil is quick to annihilate in the slightest pretense, Yahweh is reluctant to punish and eager to relent. With all this, we can now take a new look at John chapter 10, the passage that inspired all those cheesy Sunday school posters. Jesus describes himself here as the good shepherd, just as Ezekiel said God would himself be the shepherd. And once again, there's this fascinating comparison between the bad shepherds and the good shepherd. In verse 1, Jesus talks about those who enter while avoiding the gate. And he describes them with two words, thieves and bandits. Now, thieves fits very nicely with that domestic reading of the bad shepherds. The thieves were those who would steal from the flock to enrich themselves. But the word for bandit is particularly suggestive. It's the same word used for Barabbas and the other revolutionaries and insurrectionists. Here, Jesus seems to contrast himself with these sorts of merely political agents, the kind of agitators that are trying to have an insurrection. Jesus goes beyond this, just as Ezekiel went beyond the Jeremiah version of replacing the bad political rulers with slightly better rulers. In this case, Jesus is the one who calls the sheep by name. And in verse 15 to 18, Jesus undoes all the usual political categories for he completely reconstrues what it means to have power. On this version, to have power is actually to relinquish it to willingly suffer for others and to be defeated. And yet, paradoxically, it's not a passive sort of power. He emphasizes his own agency in laying down his life. No one's making him do it. Even in his surrender, he seems to have a regal authority. And that's really the good shepherd. Not the fuzzy poster, but an authoritative God who gives up power to empower his subjects, sheep that he knows by name and his redemption of the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.